Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the Definitive Developers Podcast, live from the Boogie Down Bronx. I'm your host, Michael Nunez, our co-host today. Dave Anderson. And today, we're asking, what is the best way to Agile? There's got to be a way. The one true Agile, it's not just a capital A, the whole word is capital. Yes. It's scream case. <laughs> the, the best, and it's the best way to do it. We have this question, and we have a guest today. We have... Diana Larson. How's it going, Diana? It's going as well as it could be expected in <laughs> these days and times. Yes. Yes, yes. I mean, I we're all... I figure that's a win. <laughs> that, yeah, that is definitely a win. We're all still at home, at safe and sound to the best of our abilities. Diana, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, so I'm somebody who's been hanging around with the Agile world for a while. And a lot of people are familiar with some... with either conference talks I've given or written a few books, the Agile Retrospectives book, another book called Liftoff that includes information about chartering teams and helping them get started, a book called Five Rules of Accelerated Learning. That actually is one of my real prime interests is in how people learn and improve their skills, their teamwork, their products, all of those kinds of things. And then I'm also the co-author of the Agile Fluency Model white paper. Mm. So it sounds like we're in luck. We may be able to answer this question today. <laughs> like You may be able to tell us finally how we were supposed to Agile end all be all. End all be all. This is a yeah, final episode right <laughs> no, now of this. No pressure. We're going to end the podcast after this. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, maybe. <laughs> do, do, you, do you have an answer to start? Like, what is the best way to Agile? Like, if we approach you with that question right now, what is the response you would have? Well, I have been a coach and consultant for decades now. So my answer is very well honed. <laughs> It nice. depends. It depends. <laughs> yes. oh, on what it is you're trying to accomplish. And things like, you know, what industry are you in? What kind of software are you building? I mean, my interest is primarily software teams. And so lots of people are extending Agile further and beyond into other parts of the organization. But I came into the Agile movement because I had and have a real affinity for people who work in software and IT. And so that's who I'm most interested in. And so it depends on what you're trying to accomplish, <laughs> what kind of benefits you want to get from your teams. You want to, you know, what, what are your expectations for their performance? How often do you need them to deliver? You know, all those kinds of things. Right are determinants like, in what's the best Agile. And I guess also like what kind of limits you're facing right now, say if there's like a global pandemic and, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and, you know, there's been lots of conversation about organizations that have continued to have the same expectation for productivity from teams that were formerly co-located and now are scattered to the winds and only able to work in an online format like we are now and are not given the tools that they need to do that or the, you know, the, the rest of the environment or the thing that breaks my heart the most is when I discover that teams that you formerly were co-located 
now have had members swap out because some have been furloughed and new people have been added mm -hmm. and they don't get video. Mm -hmm. They only mm -hmm. have an online production environment that they can see and they have no video with other team members. Mm. And, you know, those are a number of limits and constraints that those folks are dealing with that really have to be looked at. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge. I've definitely had some colleagues early in my career who were like in India and I never knew what their faces look like. Right. And it was it was so hard to build a team when you could not imagine the face and someone finally provided me a photo of them but it was like you know a cell phone photo from mm -hmm. you know 2005 so it was like oh, yeah. two, one megapixel or something mm -hmm. well and what's so sad about this is we have had this information about how to work in a distributed way we know what is recommended and what the inhibitors are and it's all well known i mean your example, Dave, of working with people in India, it's way easier for people on the East Coast to do that than for me, like people on the West Coast. We are exactly 12 and a half hours off yeah. from folks in hour. that part of the world. Yeah, <laughs> half hour just rubs it in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. But, you know, when you're a little closer, like I have a lot of colleagues in Germany and they work with people in India and that's only a five hour difference. So it's mm -hmm. manageable. But so if you've got a manageable set of time differences like that, there are a lot of things you can do that have been known for a long time, like just even knowing what the weather is. Right. And, you know, giving out a weather report of, you know, what's it like where you are, where my teammates are, or what their faces look like, or what time it is where they are, or, you know, sharing some simple things like that. It's always been known that even those things will help bring the team closer. And then, of course, you know, the primary thing of needing to be able to see each other, mm. at least have a face to put to a sound of voice, you know, to know who sounds like what. Those things are really super important. And that's like mainly from a perspective of like building team empathy or? Well, team empathy, yes. And non-empathetic teams are not very productive teams. Mm -hmm. So okay. it's got, there's a business case behind it. It's not just touchy-feely. I, early when I first came into the agile world, I remember running into somebody who said, you know, the last time I talked to you, I thought everything you talked about was all touchy-feely because we were talking about retrospectives and things mm -hmm. like that. He said, now I've been promoted into management and I've realized it's all touchy-feely. It's all flow. Oh, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. oh, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like that's those are the drivers. It, those are the essential skills, not the soft <laughs> skills, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the reason that we, I mean, we talk about these things of being the connectors. We're humans. We like to connect with each other. Mm -hmm. and, and particularly if you want us to work together, we need to be connected to each other. And so recognizing what are those constraints, what are those limits is a really important thing because only then can you begin to work with them. Only then can you begin to say, oh, this is a limitation we have. Actually, you know, figuring out how to work within this limitation makes us more creative. Here's another limitation we have. This one is, is so constraining that it is 
causing us to not be able to perform to you know our full potential Mm -hmm. and so being able to be discerning and discriminating about those things i guess so the first step is like realizing that there are limits (laughs) or that there are maybe new constraints that are there and trying to identify them and name them and particularly now i mean because we're faced with so many new ones that we hadn't really thought about before yeah i mean there have always been limits in every situation, but some of them are more familiar than others. And now so much is new to us. One of the things I'm going to talk about in my session tomorrow, my mom was an art teacher mm-hmm. and an artist herself. And so from very early on, I heard a lot about you can't make art if there are no constraints. Mm. If you have no boundaries at all, no anything, it paralyzes the artist. Right. Right. There needs to be some limits, some boundaries to bump up against. Then that fosters creativity, that fosters innovation. And so, like everything else, limits are, you know, have our yin and yang. They are, they give you strengths and they can impose weaknesses on you. And you have to, you have to look at them and figure out what that is if you're going to get the most benefit yeah i definitely felt that like starting a new project where you don't have the very most important thing identified yet and you have to figure out what that is and the feeling of not having those limits and not having that like pull that direction the momentum forward to a thing like it just feels like it could be anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a word that a lot of people will use for that is untethered. Mm. It's mm-hmm. like free floating. Oh, my God. You know, and so a tether is a kind of limit. You can go this far, but no further. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's a comforting limit, an enabling limit. And it keeps us from just flying off into into <laughs> crazy world. Right? right. So, yeah. So what are some limits that you've found can be helpful like when you recognize them well things like just a really fundamental thing is a limit of space like for teams it's important for them to know what is their space whether it's a co-located team that has a room or mm-hmm. a defined set of cubicles or whatever that they all sit in they all work together kind of defining that enables the conversations, it enables the overhearing, it enables a lot of those things. Online, it's the limits of, you know, within the workspace, this is our channel, that's your channel, right? Those are boundaries, those are limits. And it it helps us organize our work if we have those. And so that's one example of some pretty helpful limits. Other ones are things like team working agreements. Mm -hmm. We don't accept just any old kind of behavior here, right? We are looking for the behavior that is going to help us work well together. So we create some agreements that sort of Mm -hmm. bound what's permitted behavior here. Right. And have those conversations about, you know, mundane things like 
you know, what are our core hours or how late can somebody show up to a meeting before the rest of us are upset with you and, or, you know, (laughs) those kinds of things. The rest of us feel like you're wasting our time, right? If you're not showing up for a meeting or letting us know within Mm -hmm. a certain amount of time. So those are, you know, those are all kinds of limits that sometimes we welcome and we put on ourselves. And some of the most fundamental ones are, well, a common one in the agile world is whip limits. Mm. You know, not having so many different things in flight that we can't keep track of them. Right. But narrowing that to what are the next critical few so that we know how much we can keep in flight and how we feel about that. Right. So those yeah. are all, you know, those are all examples of, you know, really basic, basic, basic limits. Story size. How many, you know, we want to make our stories all of a size that we can fit X number of them in our sprint or in our work and process limit or whatever that might be. So that, you know, odds are we're going to get at least most of them done, if not all of them. Right. right? But it gives us some wiggle room. It lets the team feel successful because they are probably going to complete some of those, but also then gives some wiggle room in case. If we miss one piece of work, we're not missing something huge because we've sized our stories in such a way that they each deliver value, but it may be a very small increment of value, Mm -hmm. right? So those kinds of things, those are the kinds of kind of basic fundamental limits that we look for. Yeah. Some of those things are like pretty nuanced that might take a team a long time to like figure out like the story size mm-hmm. is always a challenging one i think especially when you're just starting out on something but how many people can be on a team yeah and have it still be a well functioning productive team and not you know falling into factions and other kinds of things so you know lots of different ways the limits can help us and you know clarity about the limits that we want to define it's you know the limits we get to define for ourselves clarity about those keeps us out of sort of doing wishful thinking and helps us understand what the balance the trade-offs are between this idea and that idea helps us understand what's expected of us mm-hmm. and yeah right and i, I guess like there are some that we like accept willingly and that we like design into our system like the end of a sprint but there are other maybe real constraints that we did not accept but we have to like realize exist like a deadline or right. you know something right. like that right or how often do our customers want to get a new version of yeah. our product mm-hmm. right the kind of that kind of idea of cadence, delivery cadence. James and I actually both at different times worked with the same company that was building mass spectrometers. And we worked with the team that was building the software to go in those mass spectrometers. Mm -hmm. In that instance, they were actively discouraged Mm -hmm. from releasing anything you know, any more often than every six months or every year or so on. Because once a new product was released, it had to go through FDA approval. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was like an 18 months, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> and so, so they didn't, you know, they didn't want you throwing something new out every other week or certainly not, you know, 14 times a day, like it used to be talked about at Flickr <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know, that the limitations of the regulations mm-hmm. on their product had to be well understood so that they could do the right thing within those constraints as well. Right. And those constraints of the legal requirements are derived from like other constraints of like what could very rarely go wrong with that software. Like if Flickr goes down, then, you know, I don't see my vacation photos, but, you know, the volume of the mass or whatever, if that if that goes wrong, I <laughs> yeah, the volume of the mass that. I, I'm obviously not the person who should be designing this thing, but if that pace goes makers. wrong, yeah, it's, it's like going to go bad. Makers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are lots of folks who are working on software that has the power of life and death. Right. Right. If, if it's not right, if the bug is such is a certain way, it actually could have very dire consequences for people. Yeah, we had a recent episode, Dave and I, about pacemakers and rockets. And we, we actually have no idea how they work. But I imagine, as you mentioned, like software for pacemakers may require rigorous testing timeline that is faster than the two weeks that the engineers want to deliver this software. So it's like you have to kind of wait it out and then put it into the FDA process in general. Right. And if you've got a constraint like that, right? You probably want to make sure you have some kind of internal production environment Mm -hmm. where you can still be doing your continuous integration, right? Mm -hmm. Even though you may not choose to release it into the wild yet or to to deploy it broadly yet. So those limits all tell us something about the choices that we need to make. And the risks that go along with our product and all of those kinds of things. So, you know, and depending on Mm -hmm. the answers to those kinds of questions, you probably need to think about your agile approach to doing the work differently. Right. Right. Because we don't do agile for the sake of agile. I guess that's bringing it back to my best way about doing agile right now. How does that like, how do limits kind of tie into the Agile fluency? Well, for one thing, the different zones in the Agile fluency model are likely to encounter different limits and differences in constraints and boundaries and things like that, just by the nature of the kind of work that gets done in that zone. So that's one thing. I mean, one of the examples I like to use for, say, the focusing zone is Focusing zone is really well suited for things that are rapidly deployed and have a not very long lifespan. Mm -hmm. So a marketing initiative website that is going to be up for some period of time and then is going to go away and then there's the next one. The expectations and the kind of the illities burden (laughs) on that kind of software you know, probably technical debt is not going to be that, you know, because it's not that long lived. It's not, you know, small things are not going to come back. And the world is not going to evolve in such a way and the technology is not going to evolve in such a way during the life of this thing that we're building that, you know, 
new ways of thinking about why this isn't working are going to come online. So focusing zone is really the proficiencies and fluency that goes in the focusing zone. It's very well suited for that kind of work or for some internal infrastructure or IT configuration work where, you know, it's not going to impact our customers are all internal. We're not going to be impacting what we're delivering to the outside world. You know, there's some other considerations there. If we are actually delivering things to customers in the outside world, some of which may be life and death, we were just talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Then we would start looking at some of the limitations that come along with being in the delivering zone. And, you know, those would be, Things like, do we have a really good set on our team of coding standards? I mean, we're going to move beyond just, you know, team working agreements and and really think about collective code ownership and what are our coding standards on our team and how does that fit or, or not fit with other teams that may also be working on other aspects of the same product. How do we negotiate those things? You know, then there's a new set of limitations for folks who are working in that zone. So that's the idea that like whatever decisions you're making with the application, like you'll have to live with them for right. the foreseeable future. So you should invest a little bit more in it. Right. And I recently was talking with someone about this topic, a product person in Germany, and she said that when the COVID hit, they looked around and they realized that they had 25 different product initiatives in flight. Wow. And she said the first thing they did was look at that situation and say, we can't do that. We have to work in much shorter increments. We have to, you know, we have to get more focused. And they they reduced that group of 25 down to three. Mm-hmm. And they said, we can work at, on three initiatives at the same time, no more. Mm-hmm. Now, as we roll those out, we may pull from that list of 25 that we had before, but we're never going, I mean, it's similar to a work in process limit, right? Mm -hmm. Only on a grander scale. We are never going to have initiatives in process limit, right? They realized they needed in their organization if they were going to make it through, you know, and that was in April or May when they made that decision. And now they're, you know, there's, I'm sure still living with it and I'm probably benefiting by putting that constraint, that limit on themselves. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So does that like kind of correspond to like a shift in the zone that they were sitting in, in the fluency model? The teams that she was working with, they are primarily teams that are working on fluency in the delivering zone. Their product is a delivering zone kind of product mm-hmm. and requires kind of a regular cadence of putting out new you know, new features, new kind of keeping their kind of main products that are in flight updated and being responsive to what new things they their customers want and that sort of thing. They're in the travel business. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So did those like additional constraints like kind of move them from like the delivery zone to the focusing zone or? No, 
Okay. No, because they're still doing the work in the delivering zone. They still need the very high-level engineering skills. They still need to work with their DevOps people. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things are hallmarks of being in the delivering zone. Okay, so it didn't change those other constraints that no. require no. them to have a... Yeah, right. But, you know, not as impacted by those mm -hmm. things. You know, some other things that I think of in the delivering zone, because they're tended to be working on longer term products where they're going to keep upgrading and upgrading and upgrading. You know, we all love to get upgrades on our, on everything. That's <laughs> but, for the day. Just but, install you know, those if updates they didn't, on my if phone. If they didn't give us <laughs> upgrades, we would be unhappy. And, but we hate the way they, you know, interrupt our work. But anyway, so because those products have a longer life and have more thinking into them. It's like, how much of that imagining that you have about future work are you going to expose to the team, mm. right? Because everything the team knows about adds to their sort of cognitive load as a whole team. And so, you know, like I love what Mary Poppendick said about, you know, no team should ever be exposed to a team backlog of work that's more than about three months worth of work. Mm. I mean, that may be kind of a rolling three months, but the product management folks, product development folks, product owners, whatever terminology people use, can have a whole set of things that they imagine they may want in the future <laughs> or that customers have asked for but don't rise to the level of being worked on right now or really soon. Um, because we know, I mean, what is it? Every cloud has a silver lining. One of the things I love about the pandemic is how clearly it has demonstrated how fast things can change. Yeah. The yes. assumptions we had about the products we were building and the things that were absolutely going to be necessary in February and March and early April are not the assumptions necessarily that we are making now. Right. My idea for the Uber of X, Y, Z is like, wait, I mean, I don't want to be Uber now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Because everybody who's in that business is, you know, looking at some really big issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, like, I guess keeping that constraint on yourself of like not planning too far away and like accepting some uncertainty less makes it easier for you to change the direction of the ship. Yeah. And, you know, the product people can have, you know, somewhere, if it doesn't bother them, <laughs> somewhere <laughs> they can have a list of all the bright ideas. Yeah. Right. They can, here's all the possible things we might do, but don't expose that to your delivering teams because they need to be head down working on the next most valuable feature, the next most valuable thing that your customers have asked for. And it just is distracting. Yeah. To know I mean, too I, much more beyond that. Yeah. I think like as an engineer, a part of me appreciates the idea that we don't have more than three months because if I knew that we had this feature that's going to roll out like six months from now and I'm implementing something, then I may try to make it and extend that particular part of the code when we don't need it for another six months. And it's like, yeah. well, a part of me is like, oh, that's Yagni, right? You ain't going to need it. But like, but we will soon. 
you know, like, but but it's there and it's in this backlog that you know we're gonna get to in six months. And who's to say in four months we may not get to that part anymore because it's no longer needed? But I built this feature to support the thing that we no longer are gonna need. And it's a rolling three months. I mean, it's right. not, you know, you don't get right up against the three-month boundary and then say, oh, yeah. let's see the next three months. as yeah. You know, no, it's, it's a rolling three months. But so that you have some sense of the context of this system, but you don't need to know all the ideas that are out there because odds are a number of those ideas are never going to need to be built. Right. I mean, that is part of the rationale of Agile is to get away from that data point in the or information in the Standish report, the chaos report way back that said, you know, well over 40% of features in any given software application aren't used by anyone, right? Why are we building those things? Right. Well, it's because we're looking at, we're imagining somebody might want them before we really know or before it really becomes pertinent to have them. And so part of the whole intention of Agile was to move away from that and really put our attention on the things that we absolutely are certain that people are going to want and use because they've told us, they've given us some information about that, and it helps us prioritize our work. For some reason, I had never heard of that report before, although the name, like, it really sticks out, the chaos report. I feel like I, I just need to go out and, and read this right now. <laughs> well, it the one that came out in the late 90s, this is, you know, back in the dark ages of Agile. <laughs> <laughs> the one that came out in the late 90s was a big stimulus for the folks who were working on what was then called lightweight methods, right? Hmm. Because it was just so horrific how many software projects were considered failures. A huge number. Never met their budgets. Always went way past their deadlines. All those kinds of things. And Agile is meant to be a solution to that problem. Let's make sure that we are building the things that need to be built and that we can finish. Mm-hmm. and actually get into somebody's hands in time for it still to be useful to them. Right. Right. So, I mean, I think a lot of folks just look at the manifesto and they don't necessarily understand the historical context of it. And it was a remarkable document for its time. And, you know, extreme programming and Scrum and Crystal and all the other folks who were getting together at object-oriented conferences and different places to talk about these things, we're really struggling with a very hard problem of how do we do this in a way that's successful? Because, you know, software is a fairly young industry. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, it's not like the same thing as building a bridge or something like the Romans did not build Facebooks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what, the first we go back to is Ada Lovelace, and she's like in the mm-hmm. mid-1800s, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, that yeah, even if you consider her sort of the beginning of writing software, the beginnings of computing. Oh, my gosh. That, that's that really still stinks. less than 200 years, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking about that report right now, too, because, yeah. like, she wrote the first piece of software, and no one ever used it. Right. 
Yeah. Sad. So, so braggable, but so sad. Oh, no. Set a tone for the whole yeah. industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, porn went out for all those buttons. <laughs> websites that I <laughs> have never been clicked on. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I feel like even if you successfully develop something to spec, it's still possible that it's never used by somebody because you never ask the person who's actually going to use it if they're going to use it. Mm -hmm. It depends on how the spec got generated, right? Right, Was it in response to a request and getting a lot of feedback from the person who's requesting it about the context that they would be using it in and and all those kinds of things? Or is it just some idea we have about what somebody might want? Now, we can't discount those either, I think. And that actually, when we talk about optimizing zone in the Agile Fluency Project, Mm -hmm. what we're counting on from those teams, in addition to the things in focusing and delivering, we are, they need all that, but then they also need the ability to be scanning the technology horizon and recognize when something pops up that if we added that into our product, it would really solve a need for our customers that our customers haven't asked us to solve yet. Mm -hmm. But we understand their domain. We understand the issues that they deal with well enough that we can anticipate this need. And so that's where you get disruptive technologies. That's where Mm -hmm. you get, you know, really market changing innovations, right? When we have the ability to do that, but it means a deep understanding. I mean, I think people talk about Steve Jobs and the iPhone and stuff as if he just pulled that out of the air. Right. But he had a deep understanding of what people wanted to do. He had a unique genius and sort of seeing Ah, you know, people would, given the way things are going, people are going to want to do this. Mm -hmm. And I can test it in a number of different ways. And I can put something out in a small way and see how that goes. I mean, it's, you know, the lean startup stuff. Mm -hmm. The customer development and product development kind of moving along in the same, at the same time in parallel paths, right? Yeah. And like I guess like living in that, zone comes with its own risks because like you know even apple for all their successes now had a pretty rocky road at times because they were doing things that were ahead of their time right like so how do you validate that risk or do you like when you're trying to live in that zone where you're scanning for new things like how do you balance like just the gut instinct with like something that's based in reality. Well, that's when our ideas about cross-functional teams become much broader. Now, it's not just cross-functional in that it's got a UX person and a DevOps person and a tester and some developers, and they're not all technologists on the team. Now we've got people on the team that are marketers, that are information architects, that are you know, from business people who understand sort of how things go out into the economy. And, you know, you have, depending on the product, you're going to have a whole set of folks there that back when we were working on that mass spectrometer team, there were chemists as part Mm -hmm. of the team. There were, you know, the domain expertise 
shifts when you get to those other kinds of folks who are really working on innovation and disruption. Then you have a whole different cast of characters that you bring together in a team that focuses only on that product. And they're, now they're focused on the whole product. They're not focused so much feature by feature, but they're right. focused on the whole product and what's the long-term trajectory of this product and how well can we understand our market and what their evolving needs may be. So, you know, needs everything from the focusing zone, everything in the delivering zone, but then also this other whole set of things that make up a team's ability to be in optimizing, to be fluent in optimizing. Mm, okay. Interesting. So it goes kind of into like a really deep expertise and knowledge. Like that's very broad. I mean, I guess like when I initially thought about optimizing, I was thinking of like A-B tests and, you know, changing where a button is on a page mm-hmm. just by... A guess or something. <laughs> right. Well, but. yeah, those kinds of things are probably happening in the delivering zone. And so you th- there, you want your product people who are working most closely, you want them to be customer advocates, mm-hmm. right? They need to understand, but they aren't necessarily full-time team members mm-hmm. in delivering. But they should be out asking those kinds of questions and getting that kind of feedback and doing the demos to the real customers so that they get that kind of fast feedback and then feed that back into the team. Totally. So like, where do you go from optimizing? Like, it sounds like there's no more limits left. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are, there is another zone, but you know, 98, 99% of the teams that we see in the wild out there, a lot of them haven't really even moved into They've decided they don't want to be pre-agile anymore, but they haven't really picked a zone. So there's a certain number of folks out there who just aren't really focused on developing the kind of proficiencies they need. Mm -hmm. But even of those who have, well more than like 75% are either in focusing or delivering. That is the bulk of the need that's out there. Then there are a few who have these continued R&D teams in almost any industry. Those kinds of folks need to have more of the optimizing zone fluencies. The additional zone that we have we call strengthening, and it is sort of moving beyond being most concerned with the health of our product to being most concerned with the health of our organization. And so our whole product line, our whole everything. And so those tend to be small organizations. You don't see those in really big organizations. The biggest I've seen that have some of the hallmarks of strengthening zone teams are in the couple hundred person Mm. size of the organization down to maybe a dozen people or something like that, you know, in that range, really very, very small company range. Because it's just really hard. Once you get above a certain number of people, I don't know if it's Dunbar's number or what, but once you get beyond a certain number of people, it's just the communication overhead Mm. keeps you from being able to do certain. I mean, it's a limit, right? Right. Scaling puts a limit 
on what you can do. Yeah. <laughs> right? We think of scaling as, oh, we're going to be able to do all these big things, but there's a different kind of limit that gets imposed there, mm. right? We can no longer all talk to each other. Now right. we need the limitation of figuring out which communication channels are we going to use, right? Mm. And, and we want to stick to those because we don't want anybody to miss anything. And, you know, so that's different kinds of limits come in when we get bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, smaller companies are more nimble. We know that. Mm-hmm. But not necessarily more resilient. So that choice of do we want to be extraordinarily nimble and make a lot of changes and be able to pivot a lot? Or do we want to be resilient about the changes that come to us from the outside? You know, where are we going to What's the balance there? Where do we want to make sure that we're building this into our culture? That's a limiting choice, right? We're going to make some decisions about which way to go there. Right. Like valuing consistency over like pursuing this like broader vision of like improving the portfolio or the the organization. Right. I don't know. I feel like I want to be strengthening, but you know, it's, it sounds like a really tough place to get to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because at the Agile Fluency Project, we, you know, we work a lot with Agile coaches because the tools that we have in the Agile Fluency model, and we've got a diagnostic, and we've got something we call the improvement cycle, and then we've got a bunch of supplemental things that support all those tools. They are most helpful to either leaders in organizations or agile coaches, you know, who are trying to help be trusted advisors and who want to bring their best and, and help the teams grow and thrive and become more, more proficient and develop more capabilities and capacities and those kinds of things. So we work primarily with agile coaches and the kind of paradoxical or funny thing that we run into is that agile coaches and, you know, and visionary leaders and the kind of people who are drawn to the agile fluency model all love the idea of the optimizing zone and then especially the strengthening zone, right? They gotta be strong. These are like (laughs) awesome, right? And we call it strengthening because their focus is strengthening the whole organization as an optimizing is optimizing the product, right? So the funny thing is, is that it's the focusing and delivering zone teams that actually need the most coaching. Once teams become pretty fluent in optimizing or definitely in strengthening, they are able to do all this stuff on their own, right? They don't need <laughs> coaches so much. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they've learned to think about complexity. They've learned all these different things. and. <laughs> So your comment reminded me of that, about mm-hmm. wanting to be in the strengthening zone. One day I'll get there. One day. Just keep well, doing reps. That's, a, that's the, the best agile right there, is it? <laughs> right in the strengthening zone. Yeah. Although it sounds like there's benefits to picking the right place for you to be and seeing what limitations you're feeling right now and you know what would drive success for you and your organization. Absolutely. That's key. It's understanding 
what are your business goals? What do you need right now? How do you need the teams to contribute to that? And then making sure that you're not over-investing someplace, but you're investing appropriately in the things that will really enable that team or those teams to meet the business needs that you have. And that's the key. I mean, we're talking about, sometimes call it fit for purpose. How do we ensure the teams have everything they need to be fit for purpose and all the supports, all the investments, everything to enable that for them? Awesome. Diana, are there any services that you're currently offering in terms of the Agile fluency model and workshops or anything of that nature you have right now? Absolutely. On our website, we have a free downloadable ebook. It's the same content, really, that's in the article that Martin Fowler published for us on his Blicky, but it's in a more sort of mobile device-friendly format, and some people just prefer to get their information this way. So we do have this downloadable ebook. We encourage anybody who wants to learn more about the model to get that and look at it. There's also a little 10-minute video on our website if they just what, want a little taster. What's the website? Agilefluency.org. Awesome. And then in addition to that, and uh, it suggests that folks take a look at our workshops and events page. We currently have live a couple of different workshops, one called the Agile Fluency Facilitators Workshop, which is the one that gives folks the opportunity to get a license to use all of our materials. And then we just give them everything we've got. And as new things get developed, they get that. But it's a substantial program. It's eight sessions over three months, a lot of learning by doing small cohorts. People seem to really love that aspect of it. And of course, all online. And so that we've got, we always have a couple of those going at any given time so that people can look at the different schedules and figure out which ones work for them. And then we can also offer those as private workshops and we can customize those so people can get in touch with us about that if they like. And we have a number of places on our website where folks can contact us about any questions or anything that's come up for them if they've been reading the ebook or just have heard things at sessions that they've gone to or whatever <laughs> and, and wonder about them. We try to really stay in conversation with folks as much as we can. So we've got all those things going and, you know, love to hear from folks. Awesome. And that was over at agilefluency.org. At agilefluency.org. Yes. Awesome. Any social media you'd like to promote? Well, I have a Twitter account. Diana of Portland is my Twitter account. And so does James Shore. His Twitter account is James Shore. And then the Agile Fluency Project also has its own Twitter, which is at Agile Fluency. In addition to that, we have where none of us are really, there is a Facebook page, but none of us are really big Facebook users. Mm -hmm. So we have a company page on LinkedIn. And then, of course, we have our individual pages there. So those are all places you can find us. If for some reason you can't find us on the website, <laughs> you can track us down. You you, I love Ron Jeffries has a wonderful little thing in his Twitter bio where he says, if you really want to know who I am, I'm confident you can figure it out. <laughs> That's kind of where we are. If you just put in, you know, whatever search engine you're using, if you put in Diana Larson or James Shore, we're probably going to pop up there. Gotta oh, get that awesome. SEO. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was great having you on. It was great. Thank you so much for coming on down, down into the rabbit hole. 
Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and my amazing co-host, Dave Anderson, and me, your host, Michael Nunez, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole.